we are continuing in a series called Liar Liar, and what we're talking about are the lies that our culture tells us, um, lies that maybe spiritual forces tell us, and the lies that we tell ourselves. And the, uh, because it's liar, liar, life on fire, is when we start to believe these lies, when we start to act in a way that uh, we think will, will, will make these lies true, our life literally turns on fire. So if we think, one of the lies was, I need to be happy. If we feel like we need to be happy all the time, if we're pursuing happiness, we are going to make decisions that are destructive to our life. If we believe the lie that we need to be in control and we try to control everything and everyone around us, we are going to light our life on fire. If we believe the lie that we need to escape, we are going to run to things that our culture offers us in order to escape. And in Western culture specifically, we have lots of things that we can run and escape to. We've got Facebook, we've got Netflix, we've got Uh, drugs, alcohol, we've got pornography, all these different things. We don't need to escape. And what we talked about uh, was the fact that God does give you more than you can handle. But he doesn't give you more than you can handle with him. And so we we talked about that. This morning, we're going to talk about another lie. But before we do that, I want to give you a little insight into our leadership team, both our staff and board. We have a certain uh, thing that we say all the time, as a matter of fact, when I begin it, uh, pe- uh, people on my staff will finish the sentence, and it's, it's this. Is this a problem to be solved or a tension to be managed? As a matter of fact, I say that so often that if we're in a staff meeting and I say, is this a problem to be solved, they will go, or a tension to be managed, right, because they're so sick of hearing it. But if you're in any type of leadership or if you're on any type of team, this is a really good question to ask yourself. Are we trying to solve a problem that can be solved or are we trying to manage a tension that can never be solved? So I think I got it from Andy Stanley. I'm not too sure, but I've so adopted it into my own life that uh, I can't help it. So let let me give you an example. A problem to be solved... Okay, so here's, here's a couple ministry problems or ministry issues that could come up at a church meeting. One is we need foosballs, okay? You're like, what is that? Well, that was actually an issue we had eight years ago. We had a foosball table, and the foosballs kept disappearing. And we were trying to come up with this system to stop the foosballs from disappearing. The problem is the foosballs were touched by little kids. And then when little kids touch things, they disappear. I don't know if it's a magic thing, what they do, or whatever. So the whole narrative was they're stealing. How do we get them to stop stealing foosballs? Okay. And so we talked about having a sermon series on, on theft, you know, all, all these different things. Well, re- in reality, what was happening was either the kid just put it in his pocket or it got lost or he threw it at somebody and it got caught behind a couch or something like that. So we, we were trying to like manage this tension that wasn't a tension, just solve the problem. So while we were talking, I went on Amazon and I bought a thing of 100 foosballs for $8. Problem solved. We did not run out of foosballs. And when we did, guess what we did? Bought another tub of 100 foosballs. As a matter of fact, you might be sitting on a foosball right now. They're probably everywhere all over campus. Problem solved. Now here's a tension to be managed. Worship music. (laughs) Okay? We will never, ever, 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 ever solve the problem of worship music. 
You think there should be more hymns. You think there should be more worship music. It's too loud. It's too soft. It's too fast. It's too slow. It's too this. It's too that. That's not what I listen to on the radio. I hate the radio. All these different things. You will never, ever, ever solve that problem. So if a leadership team in a church thinks they're going to solve the worship problem, it'll never happen. There's too many people to take care of. And this is what happens a lot of times in our institutions. You might even be thinking about your work, going, I think we've been trying to solve a problem that it can never be solved. There you go. Look what you learned at church today. Isn't that great? Here's another one. Be the church. Be the church is a problem to solve. We skip church on a Sunday. We find a home. It usually has a lot of overgrowth. And we go and we remove all the overgrowth and we paint it. Problem solved. Helping the community. Tension to be managed. We give money to some people. We don't to others. We have a homeless, uh, a, um, a shower ministry, right? So people come on Mondays and Thursdays. Sometimes it's real quiet and it's real great. And other times you got people smoking weed and walking around with their shirt off, which is frowned upon here. I just want you to know that. And so, so you're, you're just, you constantly have this tension. So you go, man, do we just... Like, this is a bad day. Maybe there's somebody with, uh, like, a mental illness. And so you're like, we're shutting down the, the just showers. It's just too much. No, no, no. We manage the tension. What can we do to keep serving our community? To manage? Does that make sense? Okay, it should. Because la- yesterday, I mean, last week, we talked about the first part of the lies that I'm going to be talking about this morning. The first part was, I'm not worthy. There are some here that are thinking to themselves, if you knew my past, if you knew my thoughts, if you knew where I want to go in my future, you would not say that I'm worthy of God's love. And what we talked about last week is that is a lie. You absolutely are worthy. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, what what we talked about was the fact that everybody has an opinion about you. Every person. So your, your spouse has an opinion, your teacher has an opinion, your neighbor has an opinion, everyone has an opinion about you, you have an opinion about you, but even your opinion doesn't really matter. Only God's opinion matters. That's the only opinion. And so we, we started with this verse, or we ended, we ended that with this verse, and we, what I really wanted to get across to you is that nobody's opinion of you, even yourself, matters. God's matters, and he loves you unconditionally, a period on there. God loves you unconditionally. So we talked about this verse. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. So you start to get this idea that this person's just like, hey, it doesn't, you know, I don't, they, they kind of own it. It only matters what God says. He says, by this, I'm not innocent. It is the Lord who judges me and the Lord loves me and he does love you, period. It's unconditional. Now the problem with that, that's one part of the tension. Some people don't feel loved by God. And as I said last week, you are. The other side of the tension is this other lie. And this lie is this. Just be yourself. If God's going to love you no matter what, for who you are and however you are and what you've done, just be yourself. And this lie is so pervasive in our Western culture. As a matter of fact, when you go home today, if you're watching television or whatever, if you just watch, just look at the ads you get, the underlying narrative is just be yourself. 
It doesn't matter. Just get, go get your thing. What your desires, your needs, the way you're created, you just be you. And a lot of that actually sounds pretty good. And when we think about the outcome of just be yourself, we think about somebody you know, dyeing their hair purple or blue, or we think about someone shaving one side of their head, and, and it's all innocent, and it's fun, and you think of someone just kind of getting up and dancing when everyone else is sitting down, and you think like, yeah, that's, you want to kind of encourage that. I, I have a couple pictures of my daughters just being themselves. This is Emily with uh, three nose rings and I think three uh, lip piercings, okay? I forget how old she was when she uh, has those on. And so she was just being herself. She wanted to do it, so she did it. Um, they're fake, by the way. They're not actual piercings, okay? Everyone's looking at me like, wow, okay, Child Protective Services. Uh-huh. Uh, this is my daughter. This is her school picture. Uh, she wanted to mess up her school picture, so uh, she wanted to look, she wanted to look, uh, you know. And so you think, who would stop that? Like, who would stop a kid from being themselves? And, and like all of our, okay, I'm going to get it off of there because you guys aren't paying attention now. Okay. <laughs> and, and it like fits with this verse. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Right? My conscience is clear. That sounds right. But even in the back of our minds, we know just be yourself isn't really that great of advice. I think oftentimes we want to say it because we want to be ourselves. <laughs> so I can't say, I want to just be myself, and then I can't let you just be yourself. I, I used to know a guy, one of the most caustic individuals I'd ever met. Everything was a blow-up. Everything was this big deal, right? He acted like he was four. Problem was, he was 40, okay? And so to just be yourself, what happens if yourself is flawed? I mean, do we say to Ted Bundy, hey, Ted, I know you're eating people, but you know what? That's just you, buddy. Just be yourself. Yeah, crazy Ted. So he's been cutting things up and putting them in the freezer. No, of course not, right? Bernie Madoff steals $65 billion from, from retired people. That crazy Bernie. Man, he's been stealing from innocent people for years. Just be yourself, Bernie. Well, he's in prison now, so... I don't know what's happening, but uh, this is the case, right? We know it doesn't really make it to its natural thing because we understand this process that even though we're unconditionally loved by God, that he wants us to reach our potential because we're unconditionally loved. I'll give you another example. I was at a funeral yesterday and uh, of a wonderful woman who was 96 years old when she passed. And uh, it was really cool. Just as a side note, my dad was doing the funeral. My dad's a retired pastor. And uh, he's such a pro. I was like watching him do this funeral. And I'm like, I have so much to learn, sensei. It was like, uh, it was so good. I never wanted to do a funeral again. And he, he does them for Forest Lawn now uh, on the side. He's done probably 500 funerals. And they're all very personal and very sweet. But during the funeral, you know, all the family was there, and uh, Pat had, uh, I think, eight great-grandchildren, and so they were all there, and one of the great-grandchildren started that, that, I don't know where they learn it, but it's the perfect tone to go right into your brain. So it's like, 
And so I'm just like, ah, what is that, you know? It's just, it's just, and it gets louder and louder and louder and louder. And you're thinking, this is a funeral. Who's crying? <laughs> like that. And then you look over and you go, oh, it's the one-year-old. And all of a sudden, you start kind of not to hear it, and the parents are trying to calm the kid down, and ultimately, they took the kid out of the thing. Now, imagine if I'm sitting there in my seat, and they start going through the open mic on the funeral, and somebody gets up to the open mic and says, I haven't really written anything down, so I hope I don't ramble. That is code word for you're not leaving anytime soon. I just want you to know that. I've done many funerals. That's what that means. And so he starts going on. He talk, talks about, oh, you know, I, I loved Pat. You know, we were in, uh, I think it was um, Colorado. No, we were in Mammoth. And it was in summer of 95. Okay, my internal me starts going, <laughs> stop it stop it okay now if I started doing that we would all in this room go dude what in the world are you doing I'm like I'm just being me man I'm just being me this is gonna this is if I don't do something this is gonna go on forever I'm just being me now here's the thing let's flip this again this is the other tension God loves you period. End of story. No opinion about you matters except for his. Here's the other tension. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So you can take this same verse and you can apply it to both tensions. What I like about doing that is the center is always the Lord. What does the Lord have to say about my value? And what does the Lord have to say about my potential? Okay? Now, here's, I want to show you just one instance that Jesus did. Jesus, the one who loves you unconditionally, loved you so much that he died for you. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he didn't expect us to be perfect first and then be saved. He he knows about all, all that kind of stuff. Watch how he talks to somebody about where they are in life at their current spot. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus is beginning to say, listen, I love you unconditionally. And I love you so much that I want you to see your better potential that I see for you than what you see for yourself. And these were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Outside, they had it all together. See, this is why our opinion of each other doesn't really matter. Because I can look at you and go, wow, you know, that Jedediah, We don't have anyone here named Jedediah. I just wanted to pick a name that I knew someone wasn't going to go, wow, you're talking right to me. Uh, That Jedediah, he's got it all done. And inside, if I keep telling him that and telling him that, he's going to miss out on some inside-out work that the Holy Spirit would want him to engage in. And so, you know, Jesus paints this picture. I don't know if you've ever gone to a 
uh, to go get a bowl of cereal. And so you've got this cup and you reach in, or the bowl and you reach in, and, and it's gone through the washing machine, but when you actually look inside, there's like stuff like crusted on, like the whole, whole, whole like in there. And it's like clean, but it's not. And you have to make that decision. Am I just going to dump the milk right out? It's not that bad or whatever. Jesus gives this word picture. When you, on the outside, everything looks great, but I'm not concerned about the outside. I want to work on the inside. And if the inside is worked upon with the help of our Heavenly Father, the outside takes care of itself. So he says this. He says, blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. He goes on. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. Now, again, this is a question. This is a question that you're going to have in your small group questions. Listen to the language Jesus is using. Very, very strong. Especially, especially to this culture, okay? Here's the question I have for you. Does Jesus love the Pharisees? Does he love them unconditionally? Does he love them in the midst of their greed and their self-centeredness and their self-righteousness? Yes, he does. What is he doing? He's rebuking them. But do you think he just wants to punish them or do you think he really wants them to wash the inside of the dish. He wants them to wash the inside of the dish. And there's a free answer to your small group questions this week. Woe to you, teachers of the law. You're like whitewashed tombs. They would have these tombs, these stones that go over these tombs, and you'd go and you'd keep them all clean, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. Max uh, Lucado has a, oh, I spelled it wrong. I have Max Ludato. If you're watching Max, who's written 20 books, I doubt he is. Um, I'm sorry about that. He has this famous quote. He says, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He want, Okay, I told you I spelled it wrong. You don't have to laugh at me. He wants you to be just like Jesus. He refuses to leave you that way. Now, here's the thing. He is an incredible writer, a very prolific writer, but I, I take issue with this famous statement just a little bit. Because it says this, God loves you just the way you are, but, and I think a lot of us still run to that but, like God loves you just the way you are, but if you could just fix this one little thing, he'd love you more. God loves you, but yeah, just um, that, that, that thought process you have, that, that, that little habit, that's the thing. Mm-mm. God loves you just the way you are. Okay, so here, here's what I did. I changed it a little bit to my own thing. Mine's more wordy because I'm not an author, okay? It starts like this. God loves you. Okay, that's just period. Three words. God loves you. And wants you to be the best Jesus you can. God loves you and wants you to be the best Jesus you can in your context. Okay, so see, what happens is when we start to think about God loves you and wants you to be like Jesus, you start thinking like Jesus, and, and you lose the context that you're in. In fact, we can manage the tension of being yourself and being like Jesus at the same time. We can manage that tension. It'll never be solved, but we can manage it. The process, the, the, the really big word, the theological word is sanctification, which just sanctify just means to be set apart or to be holy. Sanctification is the process of that. And so 
God loves you. He wants you to be the best Jesus you can in your context. So Jesus was never married. So how am I supposed to be Jesus as a husband? Okay? Jesus never had kids. How am I supposed to be Jesus as a father? Okay? Jesus never had to drive. That's why he's sinless. Okay? <laughs> so so how, do I, how do I do that? How do I become the best Jesus I can in my context? And it goes on, for your, uh, for your sake. So God loves me. He wants me to be the best Jesus I can be in my context for my sake. So when he asks me to do things, when he asks me to change, he's not saying change and then I'll love you more. He's saying become the best Jesus you can in your context and it will work out better for you. No matter what your circumstances are, no matter where you are in your marriage, no matter what, how your kids turned out, no matter who your boss is, no matter who your teachers are, no matter who your friends are, no matter who your neighbors are, be the best Jesus you can be on, in your context for your sake. And then last, and for the sake of those around you. Okay, so yes, mine's three times longer than Max Lucado's, but... Or Lucado. Now he's going to be mad at me again. <laughs> I can't even get his name right. God loves you and wants you to be the best Jesus you can in your context, for your sake, and for the sake of others. Now watch. We're going to see how Jesus, we saw how Jesus talked to the Pharisee. Now we're going to see how Jesus talks to you and I and what that inside-out type of work looks like. Okay? He says, You have heard it said... You shall not commit adultery. So let me just tell you what's going on right here. This is the Beatitudes. It's two chapters long in Matthew. It's chapter 5 and chapter 6. And this is basically Jesus' liar, liar service, okay? What he's trying to do is unravel all the things these people have been taught for centuries. So he says, blessed are the poor, right? Blessed are the meek. These things don't, these things were upside down teachings. Blessed are those uh, who are persecuted, okay? Those, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so he's unraveling all these things. And the you've heard it said part, and which is the part we're in right now, is all about the lies we've been told. If you just don't commit murder, you're going to be fine. And then he says, I don't even want you getting angry. And he says this one. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is beginning a deep work, a deep revelation, a deep understanding that there's work for us to be done, work uh, for us to do in the deepest parts of our life. It doesn't make God love us more. It just makes us more effective. It's for our sake and for the sake of those around us. Then he goes into some of the strongest language you'll hear Jesus say. I want to be able to explain this a little bit. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, I know that this is not a literal teaching because we'd all have one eye, okay? 
our eyes always cause us to stumble, whether it's shoes or a car or some woman or some man or some house or whatever. We're constantly seeing things that we want that we can't have, and we have, end up coveting for those things. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. That is strong, strong language. And I want, I want to just take your Western brains for a second, and I want you to take, take them back to when Jesus was talking, okay? Because the, the Hebrew mind at that particular time didn't have the concept of hell that we have right now, okay? There's, there's, there was much more of the New Testament written. This wasn't even, no New Testament was written. He was just talking right now. Hell, this word hell, is the word Gehenna, and for everybody listening to that, that was an actual place. It was a valley, the Valley of Gehenna. So uh, it would be like this. If I said to you, uh, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, it would be better for you to lose your eye than to be dropped down into an outhouse. Okay? Right? So you'd go, ew, ah, oh, ah, oh, John, what are you doing? That's disgusting. That's exactly how they would have felt. This valley used to be uh, used for idol worship, and it was actually the Israelites who were doing it. It was an abomination to God. It was to the idol Moloch, the god Moloch, and they would make these huge fires, and they'd throw children into the fires, and their screaming would be worship to this god Moloch, and it was so detestable. I know. I'm sorry. Welcome to Sunday morning. We're so glad you're here. I hope you have a great week. Okay. Um, it was so detestable that finally when, when, when God was able to deal with the Israelites, they just ended up making that whole valley unclean and they used it as a trash heap. And it would smell and so they just lit fires. They just had it burning all the time and they'd throw unclean animals on there and all that kind of stuff. Now listen to me. This is not a talk on the doctrine of hell. What it is is what Jesus is saying very clearly to those people. If you don't deal with the thing that is robbing you of that, that, that richness in Christ, it's just going to stink for you. It's going to be hard for you. It's going to be that idol worship never satisfies. It never has the conclusion that you want it to do. It would be better for you to figure out what you need to cut off than to try to find the peace and the strength and the joy and the rest that is in Christ Jesus. It would be better if you just hung out in the valley of Gehenna. Does that make sense? Okay. So, he goes on. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body and for your whole body to go into that valley of Gehenna. See, basically, all what hell is and what these things are are separation from God. And whether it happens in eternity or it happens tomorrow, Jesus is pleading with you to move towards him, to do whatever you need to do to change from the inside out in order to become more like him for your sake and for the sake of others, to become more like Jesus in your context for your sake and for the sake of others. And then he moves on from there and he starts talking about divorce. He talks about not manipulating people. He talks about showing forgiveness he talks about showing kindness, uh, loving bad people. And he goes on and he says this. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I want to do internal work. Because here's the 
most mind-boggling thing. While Jesus was talking, he was doing it. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there, and they were enemies to Christ. And so I don't know how he did this, if he, like, like he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemies. I don't know if he kind of like glanced over at the Pharisees, like I'm talking about you. No, I don't think he did that. But they're right there, and he's loving them, and he loves them so much to go, guys, you've got to clean the inside of the dish. You've got the outside clean. That doesn't do you any good at all. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then watch what he says. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. You might be chips off the old block. You might actually walk into the fullness of what your heavenly Father would have you walk into. See, because like you and I both know, if I am living in bitterness towards someone, if, I, if, 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 if someone has wronged me, and I can't let that go, I'm just harboring onto it, I'm just holding onto it, it's as though I'm just sitting by that trash heap, the burning trash heap, waiting for it to not smell as bad. And it never will. God knows this. He knows that when we forgive, it's for our sake. The per- I can almost guarantee that the people that I don't, haven't forgiven in my life, when there are times when I haven't forgiven someone, they don't care. It's not working. They don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I hope John's forgiven me for what I did. No, they go on their merry way. Jesus is saying, look, trust me. I'm loving the very neighbors that are sitting right here listening to me. It's better. He says, you'll become children of your Father in heaven. He, then he talks about, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. So if you're waiting for something bad to happen to someone, you might be waiting a long time. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Not even the tax, not even the tax collectors, aren't, not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? In this particular climate in America, with social media, all the different avenues, we all get to express ourselves and uh, express our outrage or whatever. How amazing would it be if there was an institution, let's call it the church, where you could disagree on some things, you could be on completely different side of the aisle, you could be uh, passionate about your things, and yet you could still love the person sitting next to you. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. Then he goes on and he says this, and I don't even know how, I don't even have anything to say about this because it's just such an unbelievable Tension, because again, last week we talked about he loves you no matter what. He loves you no matter what you do. If you did more, he would not love you more. If you did less, he would not love you less. I think I've made that point pretty clear. And then Jesus, on the other tension, says this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is a very strong tension to manage in our lives. 
as we push back against this lie of just be yourself. Because oftentimes, for many of us, there are parts of ourselves that we shouldn't be. And we mask it in all sorts of different things. So, you know, you, you, you know she's very controlling. She's very controlling. I'm not controlling. I'm detail-oriented, right? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, in that case, detail away with your kids and everybody else, right? He's got an anger problem. He just, man, he's just very, I'm passionate. I'm not, I don't have an anger problem. I'm just, I'm just passionate. She's a perfectionist. I'm not a perfectionist. See, I see I do the girl's voice, right? <laughs> I just like excellence. That's all. Yeah, I demand excellence, right? He's passive aggressive. You know, I'm not passive aggressive. I just don't want you to keep ruining your life. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I see some of us have grown up in passive aggressive homes. Picked. <laughs> Picked right up on that one. That was good. That was good. So I had this long, this long thing and, uh, about uh, God loves you. He wants you to be the best Jesus you can be in your context for your sake and for the sake of those around you. I boiled it down to this little one. Don't be just yourself. Be the best Jesus you can be. Don't just be yourself. Actually, I should switch that. Forget what you're reading right now. Don't just be yourself. That's not a good plan. Be the best Jesus you can be. And it's going to show up in all sorts of different places. And what this does, why this is so exciting, is that it relieves us of the pressure of having to have an opinion on anybody else. Because the Jesus that you're being called to in your marriage... Like maybe for you as a husband, being Jesus is completely different than what it looks like for me to be Jesus in my marriage as a husband. For you as a parent, the Lord might be calling you to something totally different for how you're shaped and how your family's shaped to be Jesus, to be a parent to your kids than he's calling me to do. See, I only have to worry about, in both tensions, I only have to worry about one opinion, God's. He loves me unconditionally. And he wants me to be the best Jesus that I can be in my context. He has all sorts of different ways he does this throughout Scripture. The rich young ruler comes to him and says, you know, what must I do to be saved? And he says, sell all your possessions, right? That's not an a, a overarching thing. That was for him. In his context, for some reason, money and things and power and all that was robbing him of the life that God had for him. And God loved him too much to let him stay seated right by Gehenna. He talked to the guy who said, hey, um, I'll come follow you. Where are you staying? And Jesus is like, nah, we're not doing Ritz-Carlton, buddy. The, the, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Uh, foxes have holes and birds have nests. There's one that said, let me go bury my father. He, in, uh, in that culture, the father wouldn't have been dead yet. In that culture, you would stay with your parents until they passed. You wouldn't go off and go do something. Your, your job was to take care of your folks. Um, you know, and so that was, the individual was much less uh, valued than in our culture where the individual is exalted above all. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. There was one that said, let me at least go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said, 
Anyone who sets his hand to the plow and looks back isn't worthy to set their hand on the plow. These are individual, very difficult calls because it's in the context that those people were trying to follow Jesus. They all came with a different background. The disciples were called to to drop their nets. Matthew was called to leave his tax collecting thing. I'll put this up one more time. Just if you want to take a picture of it or whatever. It'll be in your small group notes that are posted on the website uh, from here on out. God loves you. He wants you to be the best Jesus you can in your context, for your sake, and for the sake of those around you. 